discussion in education is moving from transitions to digital platforms to the reopening of schools. The responses of each school district is different and is met with a variety of feedback. In this uncertain time, my hope is our leaders would be wise in their decision-making and meet the needs of each community. In my current context of Germany, life has resumed in a way that brings a sense of normalcy. My hope is that this sense of normalcy will return to the United States in the near future. Jatisha Marsh is a native of Columbus, Georgia. After learning of how the achievement gap negatively impacted the Atlanta community, Jatisha left her corporate career and started a career in education. Since 2006, Jatisha has made significant contributions to the betterment of students in the metro Atlanta area by ensuring their academic success and personal development. She currently serves as a regional human resources manager for DeKalb County Schools. And really excited to be part of your podcast. Uh, thank you so much. I'm just excited to reconnect with you again and just have conversations that will enrich our communities, right? Especially in a time like this. So thank you so much for just joining again. Of course, I'm over here. I'm in, uh, I mean, it's pretty cold here. I'm sure it's warm there um, in Atlanta. Yes. Um, here, it, it, we went swimming today and I was like, why am I cold? <laughs> So outdoors. So I'm just happy. I mean, we have that reconnection all over again. Yes. And so, so I, I just had some some questions that were lined up. As you know, I've been I've been interviewing uh, a variety of guests, and our biggest focus has pretty much been on this transition from the traditional classroom or traditional school to digital platforms. And I know you serve in a role inside, you serve in a leadership role inside of your district. And so with that being said, how has that transition been overall? Yes. So our uh, district, DeKalb County School District, um, a couple years ago had the uh, foresight to try to implement one-to-one -one technology for students at the middle and high school level. We also implemented some training for teachers about using various digital platforms because we had lost a lot of days due to weather. Um, there was a tropical storm that canceled school for a week. Of course, uh, people might remember the snow apocalypse in Atlanta. Of course, that canceled school as well. Um, we have a lot of severe weather here in Georgia. And so the idea was to not tack on days to the end of the school year or to take up, you know, previously planned spring breaks or holiday breaks, but we needed a weather plan. So therefore digital learning was going to be important. What we didn't foresee was a virus. <laughs> and so, you know, all of those, that foundation and all the groundwork we plan has been put to the test. Um, so I think at the middle and high school levels, as far as being able to offer classes to the students and have teachers there to instruct, it has worked well. We're a little bit more challenged in our elementary schools. Um, our school district is the third largest in Georgia. However, um, now that the CARES Act fund money has come down, we found out that we have the most students living in poverty, um, just numerically. So we have a lot of families at the elementary level that may not have access to a computer, um, but many of our principals were innovative. Um, the middle and high school principals work with the elementary 
um, principals to figure out, well, this sibling group should have access to a computer. One principal within our district, he realized that students weren't getting online and, you know, some schools had made packets and, you know, getting the packets back to the, the teachers, uh, coronavirus concerns was definitely an issue. And so um, a program that many educators are familiar with is Classroom Dojo, right? And it's a classroom management software that students are really excited about uh, using and then a lot of teachers like. So he started putting the assignments in Classroom Dojo. Mm -hmm. um, our instructional support specialist start, you know, and our principals and administrators and secretaries definitely reached out to students to engage them. Of course, unfortunately, with the digital platform and you not being able to put your eyes on students, there are definitely students who have fallen through the crack. Um, next year will be a budget downturn, but we are looking to expand our digital offerings um, and looking to buy devices for our elementary students, as well as extending our internet service. So many of our students, uh, we've been lucky to have hotspots um, donated by Sprint. Even our library has some that are available for rent. And so just trying to make the internet access um, more accessible by everyone and making sure that we expand our digital learning because there are definitely things to learn in um, using digital learning in a way that we hadn't originally intended. <laughs> I, I heard so many great things just in your response, and it, it's pretty incredible to see the community effort, too, in terms of giving those students, especially elementary students, accessibility. From You brought up your ISS to, your sec, to the secretaries, to the principals, so it, so it shows that there was a structural component there. Right. So it wasn't just, I would say, all lost or just like, hey, teachers, this is your responsibility. And that's it. It seemed that at, at every level there was some sort of accountability. Is that about is up, that about correct? Yes, definitely. There's the expectation from the superintendent, the regional superintendents that like we it's not OK for students to not access the online platform. Like what, you know, outreach attempts have we made? Um, we, you know, and especially at the middle and high school level, we can see that the student is logging onto the computer. Like, let's get them to interact with class. Um, I talked to a, a coworker in another district. What he found was that, you know, students, their parents are still going to work sometimes, and students were staying up all night. Um, and so, having class at 9 a.m. was not working for middle school students because they had been up all night. So, uh, you know, he had a, a range of time in which he could have the class. So he started having classes at two o'clock. And guess what? Like attendance was the highest mm -hmm. of any subject, you know, because yeah. he switched the time. Um, mm -hmm. Because understanding the realities of what is happening at home. Um, early on, we realized that some parents were overwhelmed with the amount of work, like they're working too. So we came up with a plan that students weren't getting the same number of seat hours, but every day, of course, the teachers, they're available to help. And so on this day, they could concentrate on this course. And on this day, this course, and on Fridays, teachers were tasked with making contact with students, helping with um, issues, uh, you know, clarifying any misunderstandings and reaching out to parents to understand like why the child hasn't engaged in digital learning. Yes. And, and you know what, this sounds very similar to how my district um, engaged, especially with the feedback from parents. A lot of the feedback that came back was like, okay, this is a lot. This is, there's a lot of work that is being given, right? And even the times in terms of what time students were waking up, we literally were following 
the same schedule of inside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. And clearly that wasn't working based upon the feedback. And so of course we sort of adjusted to a similar schedule that you're bringing up here. So, I mean, it's, it's good to hear, like it's good to process to know that, hey, um, there's not just one way that, oh, you know, my school, my school district or system is doing this, but other systems are also adapting. And right. so, I, I mean, there's just so many good notes. Um, I'll bring up something that was a bit of a concern. I did, of course, I've been talking to teachers from across the United States for the most part. I maybe hit about four states. Um, and so with that, and, and, and thinking about it, it was just, I heard one teacher that just said to me, she said, hey, you know, I have 150 science students and I've only been, or not that she's been engaged, but she's only heard from 15 from a period of March to April to May. And that was really difficult for me to hear. And it was difficult for me to comprehend. And so there's so many levels of how we can reach our students. And it's very clear that your district has said, hey, it, it, there's no reason not to figure out how we're going to reach these students. Let's go in and um, reach them. Right. So, yeah. Now, lots of innovation, like some uh, teachers I know, they've made um, one of my, um, I'm a, was a former graduate advisor of a sorority, um, Alpha Kappa Alpha, on the Clay, state, campus of Clayton State. And so some of the um, young ladies who are education, they've been hired in my district. And one of them, she made a teacher Instagram account, right? Because that's where the students are. So like she's putting up instructions, short videos. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to like understand like what students are doing and to meet them where they are. And so mm -hmm. I think that the teachers who've been successful um, at reaching more students, that's what they're doing. Wow. That is incredible. Yes, you have to. There's no, sometimes I think teachers, we, uh, teachers can have the mindset of we're gatekeepers and you meet me here, right? And so we need to shift that thinking, right, to we're meeting our students where they are, period. And so um, that's definitely an encouragement to hear. I feel fired up just listening <laughs> and encouraged to hear that. And the fact that you planned years back, very different scenario, but you were looking to say, hey, these things can happen. What is our plan for continuous learning? And that you went in that direction or your district went in that direction. Yeah, and so of course we definitely have ways, you know, based on feedback to improve, but it does take a mindset shift in how like students learn. Students are learning something every day whether they're engaged in school or formal education or not, but just take advantage of more of these, I guess, informal opportunities and things that we have not um, generally considered education as part of standard pedagogy to yeah. reach students. Yes. And yes, and with that, of course, um, we're entering into, you know, summer recess time. Um, there's planning that's taking place for the fall. And so how does that particularly look um, for maybe for your district? And, and if it's okay if you're unable to share, but... Oh, no, we're a public institution. So it, it, like the way I like to live my uh, life working in public education, everything is available by op open records request. So <laughs> there's no, you know, secrets in education. Um, and, you know, teachers all the time, we're borrowing lesson plans. So if something is working well, we need to replicate that. So I always live by that idea. But our um, professional development is taking place online um, during this summer. 
Um, our district uh, initially, of course, we had our preferred learning platforms and, you know, teachers definitely had preferences. They wanted to use Google Classroom. They wanted to use Zoom. And so our district has kind of um, lessened some of the restrictions early on based on feedback. Um, so summer school is taking place on Zoom, uh, like what we're using today. Um, so that will still occur. Um, and so everything has just been shifted online. Um, our district has not um, returned. We do have a public safety department, of course, that never went home because they are a police department, a law enforcement agency, and so that they're always open. Um, we have soft openings. We have school food sites, so individuals, you know, have been working on an ongoing rotational basis. Custodians are trying to get the schools ready for next year or um, students are coming to retrieve their items. And so we have people uh, working or even my, um, I work in HR, my onboarding secretary has to go on a rotational basis to after individuals are fingerprinted to get them to sign certain um, pre-employment documents. So we're not open across the board, um, but as much as possible, we're trying to keep things virtual for people's uh, safety. Child care is a concern. So, you know, even if we were open, what is the teacher going to do with their child if their child care uh, facility is closed? So it is very important that we keep all of that in mind. So everything is definitely virtual at this time. Yes. And it's clear, again, there's so many different dynamics, especially if you're a teacher like myself, and then you have the kids, and then you're trying to manage you know, if we're returning to in-person, it's like, okay, well, um, what can I do with my children if you have this staggered schedule, right? right. Or if you're dividing students up. And so uh, it's good to hear you're, you're consistent um, and moving forward with virtual learning and, and considering the safety of people, period, right? right? First and yeah. foremost. Right, yeah, for this summer. And it's, sort of, it's still a developing story for what's going to happen in the fall. Some of the districts are definitively saying that they're coming back. Um, we have a framework that was revealed at the uh, latest board meeting last Monday. And so, you know, we have a framework, but what's going to drive if it's in-person instruction or, you know, maybe it's in-person instru instruction in certain parts of the district is a very large district um, is the prevalence of disease as reported by the health department. Yeah. So, you know, we have mild, moderate, you know, widespread, severe, and of course we're not going to have school when there's a severe spread and the precautions are different so that is what will drive our um, decision um, I, you know we're planning to open but if for some reason you know disease spread is severe that would be unwise at that time and or you know again we're they have the health data even by zip code so we might be in a situation that everyone in the district is not home like but you know there are some people who can go to school because it's not wide in that, you know, widespread in that area because again, the district is very, uh, very dispersed. So yes. um, one size does not fit the whole district. Yes, and, and and you're just, and again, you're highlighting that importance of our public health departments, right. right? And public health professionals and the need to have their expertise in the decision-making process. This is not something that is, oh, we're just gonna make the decision because hey, this is the case, right? It, it has to be here data-driven, right? And it has to depend specifically on what's happening inside of the community. And so um, that's definitely, that's great. Again, I, I keep hearing amazing things, but this is incredible to hear. I know I keep saying it, but again, I hear various perspectives from various experiences. And so it's great to hear this. Okay, 
And so, I mean, in the midst of this, we know that here's this change. Do you feel, and, and this is just a question that I thought, do you feel that education will be transformed just from the past three months or what has happened with COVID-19? Do you feel that the future in terms of educate, again, it's going to shift in some shape or form? Well, I definitely feel that there's greater respect for teachers. Um, you know, in some countries and cultures, and I know you're, you know, you're living overseas now. So the respect, the, the, well, I feel like there was an element of disrespect for educators and teachers in the United States. And now they're at home and all these social problems are revealed and the teachers are able to just, you know, teach and they're not necessarily um, solving all the societal problems. And, you know, parents are dealing with it. Communities are dealing with it there is a greater respect for teachers. So I, um, if nothing else has come out of this, I do think that there's a, a, a greater level of respect for teachers and educators and what individuals do. Um, you know, so many parents like, how can you do this? Like, I don't have the patience. <laughs> um, like, I don't understand this. And so um, if nothing else, that has shifted. There's been a lot of talk about increasing online um, education. I was an inaugural teacher in a virtual academy, and um, many of the students I had in the virtual academy in my previous school district, I taught them in person and in the virtual academy. Mm-hmm. And I will say these were high-performing students, gifted, you know, my class, like near-perfect scores. When I taught them online, uh, scores on in general were, you know, 10 points lower. Like, they were receiving a whole letter grade lower because of just the discipline it takes to have class in online environments. You have to log on. You have to be more accountable. You can't just walk up to the teacher's desk to ask a question. You have to come to office hours or be on when they're, um, you know, teaching live. Um, You have to manage yourself in the schedule. And so I think, you know, people will appreciate more in-person instruction and there will be more, there will have to be more innovation in online um, education because it is more difficult. It's a reason that many of your online colleges and universities have such a high dropout rate. Mm. It is hard to be a self-motivated. <laughs> um, yes. Coming to in-person adds more accountability. Um, of course, we know that parents come um, so that, you know, that's uh, needed and they can do their work as well. So I think um, the shift will be, again, greater appreciation for teachers and in-person instruction and improvement in online education, like what worked and what didn't. Um, and I think there will be some research and educational research uh, you know, circles. How do you increase students' um, buy-in and participation in online learning? Because I think that is the major obstacle. It may work, but we have so many students across the country that are disengaged from online learning. Mm, yep, yep. So uh, it looks like we have a lot of work to do, right? Especially when it comes to innovation in terms of meeting on those digital platforms. And you bring that up. And that greater respect component for teachers, I think that's coming out. What, what the work that is done inside of the school environment and with teachers. I think one thing I've come to, I've come, um, to the same conclusion with many is that, hey, inside of the um, school environment, it's a hub of resources. Right. right. This is a hub for our students. And so 
whenever we're taking that face-to-face and those face-to-face interactions away, of course, it sort of changes the dynamic of how do we service our students in special education, right? How do we service our ELL students, right? How do we service those who are gifted, even those who um, are viewed as gifted also? So, I mean, there's a lot of innovation that's needed. And I think we're in the perfect time. Let's let's go ahead and innovate. And so, yes. And so, of course, we're discussing education, we're discussing that transition to online and digital learning, but we also know that education and civic engagement, they're related, right? They're correlated. And so how are you encouraging civic engagement inside of your community? What are some of the things that you are doing? Definitely. Um, Well, I started my teaching life as a social studies teacher, and I was always interested in being a social studies uh, teacher, you know, just talking about civic engagement, but also in social justice, like the Mm -hmm. way you teach history and kind of how everything's unfolding. um, It's important that, you know, multiple perspectives are are told in history. So um, just early on, I definitely had an interest in the power of education to shape um, society and people's thought processes. And um, to me, as the former social studies teacher, like that's just uh, a natural extension. Um, I will say like outside of my nine to five, I am definitely involved in my community and involved in a number of organizations. And often I'm involved in those organizations with something impacting um, education, such as through my um, sorority. Um, I am the program uh chair for Refugees in America Assistance Project. Well, it works out perfectly because I work in one of the few refugee resettlement areas around the nation. So I'm able to partner with my um, uh, members of Alpha Kappa Alpha to provide supplies and resources um, to schools in my area. Um, As a social studies teacher, like, you know, teaching students about elections. Um, Georgia is uh, open, so I've taken ventured out. So I will say that I uh, went to the nail salon that was meeting, you know, all 23 standards. And it was very low uh, population, uh, low populated the day that I um, went to the nail salon. And I ran into a former student. And she was on the phone with a former student at my school, um, the middle school I used to teach at. And she Uh was on the phone with her mother and she was so confused about the election. So, uh, you know, using that as an opportunity, as a teaching moment, like, hey, like, so it's very important. to use education to impact um, society. We know that education is correlated to better health outcomes mm-hmm. um, in the community, better economic outcomes. So uh, I see uh, education and civic engagement working hand in hand. And of course, you know, we participated in the same AmeriCorps uh, sponsor program. So that's also an act of civic engagement. You're teaching the next generation. And so um, I would say that I, I try to have my life aligned um, even down to like my church, like, you know, they highlighted educators during education um, week, right? Or teacher appreciation week. Um, And so to me, like, you know, it's so many opportunities for interaction. Um, This uh, past year, uh, I got to partner with a um, city councilwoman from Clarkston to, um, you know, have uh, supplies for refugee uh, families and adopting families um, who would not necessarily have winter coats, et cetera. So um, civic engagement and education to me just naturally go hand mm-hmm. in hand. Wow. 
and just the work that you're doing, right? Sometimes we we limit, I mean, we limit our focus to just inside of the four walls of wherever we're working. And when you're a part of organizations like Alpha Kappa Alpha, or um, whether it's 100 Black Men, whatever it is inside of your community, like that just allows for those opportunities, right? To make an impact, to make a change. And so that's really- well, And to help people- uh, Yes. And to help people, And yes. help people understand what's going on in schools because like you're, like when you're in the classroom, like your finger is on the pulse of like the future. What are the upcoming trends? Like to me, like working in a school, like I truly understand what it means to be in Atlanta because I've like seen it through the eyes of mm. children and like wow. what they- um, you think about it, like you're up on what's happening in youth culture, and then you have the opportunity within your four walls to teach. So, yeah. you know, like that was a teaching moment with a former student at my school, but okay, let me tell you about the importance of elections. Do you understand the difference between a primary? Let's go through sample voting, because of course that's a popular activity in social studies classes. Um, at one of our pre-K three schools in the district, we had the opportunity, um, the last election cycle for them to uh, vote, like with cookies. Like, I mean, so we're showing them that early on. Like you learn so many things about the, the world through a school yeah. and it's, Yes. a microcosm of society like I would not have an appreciation for um the prevalence of mental health issues in the community had I not worked mm. in a, a school yeah. district um mm. I would not have appreciation for the impact of sex trafficking had I not worked um in a school district uh, so I would not have the you know to really truly understand the impact of um you know poverty uh or just even uh, neighborhood planning, like what is the true impact of that in zoning? Like what mm, impact does that that's make true. for a school? That's true. Um, the first that's middle true. school that I worked at, like the most of the students came from one of the last, the last public housing project in Atlanta, Georgia to be torn down. And it's across from a prison. And so what does that do to students like every day? Like this is what you're seeing. Um, and the, the prison is actually notorious for, um, security issues like there's a hole in the fence so you have inmates freely uh roaming into the neighborhood and going back every day um at one point in time and so what does that do for like the psyche of students mm -hmm. so um mm -hmm. you yeah. you truly have appreciation of societal ills now is it the place that we can fix everything in schools or teachers equipped do they have the time no mm -hmm. but like i do think that um teachers and many times healthcare workers are uniquely positioned in society. And so, you know, it's a natural um, connection for teachers to be advocates in their communities. And sometimes when you don't have the, the energy or time to be advocates in your community, so just teach your students to advocate for themselves and to yes. instill them with yes. the skills to make the world better. Yes. So whether you're, you know, actively doing things or like you're just using what you can do in your four walls. Like, I mean, how many people get to impact 20, you know, 30 or, you know, even a hundred students, like, or a hundred people with it's their true. job, not many. And yes. so it's a powerful position and job. Yes, great point. Thank you for bringing it, um, just bringing it up. That is true, it's powerful, even inside of the four walls, right? So, and of course, um, as, as recently, as of recently, we've been hearing about Georgia um, yes. in, in terms of in mainstream media and voting. And so in the midst of that, um, 
what is your outlook for the future in regards to the upcoming election based upon what has been happening? But before we get to that, um, could you share a little bit of what has been happening recently with Georgia in regards to the election? Yes. First? <laughs> yeah. So I live in uh, Fulton County, um, one of the counties that experienced, uh, experienced difficulties. Um, back in March, I went to go early vote in a presidential primary. I did early voting. By election day, elections had been canceled. Uh, so, you know, they were like, we'll get back to you so you can, um, you know, vote in the, the next election, you're done with the presidential primary. So um, we have a postponed election, the presidential preference uh, primary, or, you know, you have your Democratic, Republican, and um, independent mm -hmm. um, tickets. So that was part of the issue. And so then we're supposed to have um, some uh, county elections, like for some nonpartisan races, like judges and um, school board members and well partisan in some parts of uh, Georgia. So th that was scheduled to go on in May. <laughs> and, and so with the uh, coronavirus, all of that got pushed back to my birthday, June 9th. <laughs> um, and so with that, because we uh, recognized in the state that that was going to be an issue, the Secretary of State did send out requests to absentee ballots to registered voters. Now, some people did not get those requests, uh, such as my um, father. Some people did. Um, it was sent by a company in Arizona. There were some problems with addresses, etc. But I got mine. I mailed it back in and I was lucky to receive my absentee ballot. Mm -hmm. Some people requested absentee ballots and did not get them. Um, another issue in the uh, metro Atlanta area and probably everywhere, many of the poll workers are older. Yeah. They cannot expose themselves uh, to the health risk. Um, and technically, they're supposed to be on shelter in place mm -hmm. um, here in Georgia. It just expired yesterday, unless you have lung and heart issues. So they also, uh, uh, droves of election workers quit. <laughs> or we're not available this election cycle. Um, there were many election um, sites that were at senior citizen uh, centers and uh, homes. Wow. Well, those no longer could be sites. So we had a reduction in poll workers, reduction in sites, um, you know, some issues with mail. And then there was the uh, rollout of voting machines. So some parts of Georgia, including Fulton County, were to, uh, it was a soft test of new voting technology. The, from what I understand, um, you know, individuals did not have a chance to train live with the, the machines. Um, the machines require greater um, power output because there's a, a paper trail. And so they required more connections and hookups. And then uh, I don't know if it was the Secretary of State or the uh, county offices, there was miscommunication on the number of machines. Okay. So uh, you have a perfect storm, lack of training, uh, new machines, mm -hmm. um, lack of, of polling sites, lack of poll workers. Um, you know, individuals who had planned to vote absentee yep. uh, could not. And then um, just kind of what's going on, I think, you know, there are at least, I believe, half a million more voters than in the last uh, similar election cycle. So a lot more people with what is going on in society and just kind of uh, social justice, like people like this is a, my opportunity to be heard. Like I, you know, I protested and now I'm making my voice heard. Mm -hmm. And so all of that was a perfect storm. And many of the counties had been kind of sounding the bell for months, like this is going to be a disaster. 
Um, and so that is, it's a perfect storm for what happened um, in Georgia. Yes. And, and definitely something to look at, especially as we're looking toward November, the election yes. in November. So I'm hoping that the kinks that have been identified um, can, or the cracks can be sealed before the election in November. So, yeah, and I think, yeah, the coronavirus definitely has an impact. I'm part of a, a group called Women Impacting West Georgia. And through that uh, group within uh, Douglas County, we were um, letting individuals practice with the new voting machines, right? Okay. But many of those, like going out to churches, allowing, because the machine is different. And of course, the coronavirus, like, you know, social distancing. Yeah. So uh, there definitely needs to be some education on the part of poll workers. Um, I've seen uh, teachers um, ask people like, hey, you know, the older generation, like, it's not safe for them to go out. We need to sign up to be poll workers. So I've seen a number of individuals in the last couple of days commit to doing that. Um, I saw once the lines got long, I saw members of Alpha Kappa Alpha teachers that I know like they took snacks and water and drinks. Mm -hmm. And so um, I saw businesses like donating pizzas, like to wow. encourage people to stay in line wow. and doing um, what they could. But yeah. um, if coronavirus is going to continue to be a concern in the fall, like individuals, we must, um, you know, make sure we have a process that people get their absentee ballots. Mm -hmm. um, and that we must have a process if we're going to have in-person voting, um, mm -hmm. that we have the capacity to make sure people's uh, votes are counted. Yes. And, and, and before we had our interview, you also alluded that with absentee ballots, since everyone was quarantined, that pretty much people had an opportunity to become more informed about the candidates yes. that were on. Yes. So, yeah, because I, I definitely uh, think people were more informed um, during apps because you you get your ballot before time. Um, you know, when you go to a polling site, I don't know if I've ever seen a sample ballot. I am a person who researches before um, I go to know what I'm voting for. And um, I even tell my students this and then you, like, it's always important to vote informed. And if you don't know, this is gonna be contrary with everything else you, you, you hear, don't vote for that particular race, right? Mm. Let the people who are informed uh, vote because mm. what you don't wanna do is like the totally wrong choice. Like there um, you know, studies out that show people vote for the first name, people vote for the longest name, people vote for the name that they like the best. And so, um, because that's kind of what people default to. And so that's not voting informed. And so I do think the absentee ballots gave people the opportunity to go down their ballot, fill it out, and then turn it in. So um, I was very pleased with um, the election results. Um, I saw that a number of incumbents were um, defeated and not necessarily their defeat is what is the, the excellent thing, but you know how hard it is to beat somebody with an I next to their name? Like it is like very difficult because people like, oh, they're there. They must be okay. Let's check. Yes. So when I see the people who challenge incumbents one, that shows me that people took their time to research their issues. And so I saw that in a number of races across uh, Fulton County um, where I live. So that is Wow. definitely important and, and that's that's a, a positive to hear in the midst of this and so right. wow I, I think we're incredibly hopeful for november um and again i don't know what it is but well we do know with covid19 really has exposed some i would say i, I would say cracks 
that are in our various systems, right? Not just you have education, but you have healthcare. We have even the portion with voting. And it, it sort of showed that, hey, there's some areas we have to clean up, right? Or we have to do better on, right? So, And it's just really clarified people's attention because like we have so many things competing for our attention every day. Yes. And so COVID has made people like pay attention, right? Yes. Um, so, and that's, that's just what it is. So um, of course, like it is very unfortunate that, uh, you know, as a society and, you know, lost to personal um, friends and families like this has had to happen, but it is refocused and reset um, society in a way that I hadn't even imagined was possible because you're always competing for attention and bandwidth. And so it's allowed people to hone in on various issues and to be heard. Yes, yes. And, and, that, and that's the great part. That's the positive that we have coming out of it. And hopefully in the midst of it, we are able to build a society where we are thinking about the future generations and keeping them in mind for what it will look like for them. So we're looking to make it better. Right. So with that, thank you so much, um, Jatisha, for you. just spending time to, um, to talk with the joy of learning today. Your insights were definitely very helpful and I'm sure it's gonna be helpful to others too. So thank you. Thank you for listening to our recent episode. I would love to hear feedback from you. You can send an email to info at takejoyandlearning.com. I look forward to hearing from you.